Amen, brother. Thank you for that. As we continue to worship through the preaching of God's Word, would you open your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. And our focus this morning will be verses 1 through 9. Exodus 34, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. In the 1750s, Jonathan Edwards wrote a dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world. And in that work, this was his conclusion. Thus we see that the great end of God's works, which is so variously expressed in Scripture, is indeed but one. And this one end is most properly and comprehensively called the glory of God. So the glory of God is, is the end of all things. It is the purpose for which all things were created and all things exist. Therefore, perhaps one of the most important questions that we could ask is what does that mean? What is the glory of God? What does this phrase mean? And that question will be the focus of our time this morning. And in order to answer that, we're going to look at one of what I think is one of the most significant passages in the entire Old Testament, where Moses, desiring to see the glory of God, actually has it revealed to him. God graciously reveals his glory to Moses. And this narrative breaks down into three parts. First, in verses 1 through 4, we have the request for God's glory. Second, in verses 5 through 7, we have the revelation of God's glory. And third, in verses 8 and 9, we have the response to God's glory. Now, as we look at this text, we're coming in at the end of the book of Exodus. So in order to establish a bit of context, let's take a look at verse 1 that gives us a key as to where we need to begin. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. 
And so that refers us back to just a few chapters, really beginning in Exodus 24, where Moses confirms the covenant by taking the blood of the animals and sprinkling it on the book of the covenant and on the people. And then he goes up onto Mount Sinai in order to meet with God and receive the law from God. And as he's up there receiving the law, God tells him what's happening at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Now, you may be familiar with this story in Exodus 32 where the people are concerned that Moses has been gone for 40 days and 40 nights and they're not sure what's exactly become of him. And so they tell Aaron to make us a a statue through which we can worship God. And so Aaron takes all their gold and he melts it down and turns it into a golden calf. And God tells Moses what's happening at the bottom of the mountain. He expresses his anger regarding the idolatry of the people. And Moses there on the mountain intercedes for them before God and goes down to the bottom of the mountain. But when he sees it for himself, he also is righteously angry regarding the people's idolatry. And he slams the tablets down and breaks them. And he carries out a temporal judgment on the people of Israel. But even worse, what God says to them next is that he's going to send them into the promised land, but he tells them that my presence will not go with you. For if I were to go with you, even for one moment, my wrath would consume you. And the people are obviously distraught over this news. And so Moses, again, he enters into the tent of meeting in order to intercede for Israel. And he says to God, show me your ways that I may know you. Show me how you want me to lead this people. But God, if you're not going to go with us, please don't send us into the land. And God grants this request of Moses. He tells him, because you have found favor in my sight, my presence will go with you. And Moses, emboldened by God's graciousness to him, makes a an amazing request of God. He says, please show me your glory. Now, this is not something that Moses has not experienced in the past. Remember in Exodus 24, after he confirms the covenant, in Exodus 24, 15, it says, then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses is in the presence of the glory of God for 40 days and 40 nights. And still, he wants to know more of his God. And God amazingly grants that request and gives him the instructions by which this event will happen. He tells him to be ready in the morning and come to the top of the mountain and come with these tablets of stone, but no one else is to come with you. Is there to stay at the bottom of the mountain? There are not even to be any animals grazing around the mountain. And these preparations really come down to one statement. Back in Exodus 33. Verse 20, why can no one else go up on the mountain? Why can no, one, no animals even be grazing around the mountain? 
But God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Israel needed someone to mediate for them, and Moses is that mediator. And so Moses, he, he does what God has commanded. He was obedient to all of the preparations that needed to be made in order to mediate for the people. But even Moses himself needed protection because God amends his request. When Moses asks, show me your glory, God amends his request in such a way that Moses could actually see the glory of God and would not die. He says, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So Moses, in seeing the glory of God, is protected from God by God. And so this tells us that while we need a mediator in order to come to God, we need a mediator that is greater than Moses. But in Hebrews chapter 3, we're told that we have that mediator in Jesus Christ. It says in Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So let me ask you, how will you stand before God? Are you looking to Christ as your Savior, as your mediator before a holy God? If not, be warned. No man shall see God and live. So today, may it be the day of your salvation. May today be the day that you can sing these words from the hymn writer, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. We need a mediator before a holy God, and we have one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Once we get to verse 5, we see the revelation of God's glory. Now, this is where God is actually answering this request. Moses is now at the top of Mount Sinai, and he is about to see what he has asked for. And so first, the beginning of verse 5, we'll see God's glory described. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. The Lord descended. Now, why is that? Well, Philip Ryken explains why this is such an important statement. He says, the Bible says that Moses went up God's mountain, but even when he had reached the very top, God still had to come down to meet him. He is a great God, and no matter how high we reach, he still has to stoop. For us to have an encounter with God at all requires his infinite condescension. He is the creator. We are only creatures. He is enthroned in heaven. We dwell on earth below. 
He's God and we're not. So if he relates to us at all, he must come down. And we see an example of this condescension of God, him accommodating himself to our human limitations and our weaknesses. Back in chapter 33, in verse 23, he says, Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God describes himself in physical terms. Now, we know from the testimony of Scripture that God is spirit. He does not have a body. He doesn't have a face or a hand or a back. Rather, what that term face is intended to communicate is that he's telling Moses he cannot see the full revelation of the glory of God and live. But rather, what Moses is going to see is a lesser manifestation of God's glory, but one that is nonetheless real and will overwhelm Moses and yet protect him. Joel Beakey explains why it's so essential and why it's good for us that God speaks to us in these terms. Referring to Stephen Charnock, he says, Charnock said that just as the sun's radiation could destroy us, but when filtered through our atmosphere, it illuminates and warms us. So God condescends to reveal himself in human terms so that his glory will not harm us, but heal and help us. This is how God describes his glory to us. And after he does so, we see God's glory defined. And it is here that we have an answer to our question. What is the glory of God? We see that God proclaimed the name of the Lord. God's glory is his name. His name, the divine name, represents all that God is in himself. And God gives us an insight into what the name means. Back in Exodus 3, when he appears to Moses in the burning bush and gives him the instruction of what he would have him to do, this is what is said. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. God is self-existent and he is self-sufficient. All that he is, he is in himself. He does not derive his being from any other. When we describe ourselves, we say I am and then give a list of descriptions that, that, that make up who we are. Such is not true of God. God simply is. He is who he is. And Calvin explains it this way in his comment on that verse. This is very plain, that God attributes to himself alone divine glory because he is self-existent and therefore eternal. In order that he may be honored according to his dignity, that our minds may be filled with admiration as often as his incomprehensible essence is mentioned. But then in the rest of verses five through seven, God declares his glory. We see God's glory declared, where he gives us greater insight as to who he is and what his glory is. 
First, he says that he is merciful and gracious. These terms refer to God's both disposition and action towards sinners who are in misery, who are captive to their sin. But back in chapter 33, when Moses says, show me your glory, this is the first aspect of his glory that God proclaims. But how does he say it? Exodus 33, 19, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So the first thing that God says to Moses in revealing his glory is that his mercy and grace is sovereign. That it is bestowed on sinners according to God's own choice and God's own will. It is his prerogative to show mercy and to show grace to whom he pleases. And you may say, a very common response is, well, that's not fair. That's not fair for God to do such a thing. And Paul addresses this very objection in Romans chapter 9, where he explains that of Abraham's two sons, God chose that the promise would go through Isaac rather than Ishmael. And he further says that God chose Jacob over Esau. And the objection is then raised. Is God unjust? But what Paul does is points us right back to Exodus 33. That God has mercy on whom he'll have mercy and he'll have compassion on whom he has compassion. And Paul gives even further examples, whether it's the hardening of Pharaoh or the analogy of the potter and the clay. But ultimately, it comes down to this one statement in Romans 9, verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And really, that's the end of the argument. It's that God is God and we are not. It is God's prerogative to show mercy and to show grace. No one can lay claim to it. No one can demand it. All we can do is be thankful for it and glorify God in it. Next, God says that he's slow to anger. And this is a way of proclaiming his patience. But notice the way he says it, slow to anger. Well, that presupposes something, is that God is angry. The Bible tells us that God is angry with the wicked every day. And yet he's slow to anger. He does not pour out his wrath on us when we deserve it. Rather, he is patient toward us. And Peter tells us that his patience is instrumental in our salvation. When 2 Peter chapter 3, when those people are, are experiencing those who are questioning whether the day of the Lord will come, and the church begins to think, is the Lord coming back? Peter reminds them, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any perish, but that all should reach repentance. Consider your own salvation. How many years, perhaps decades, did you live before you came to faith? How many times did you hear the gospel and spurn it and continue in unbelief before God graciously gave you a new heart and granted you repentance and faith? 
God's patience is instrumental in our salvation. God then says he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in love. I love the way that David says it in Psalm 108. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. And this love of God is a, is a faithful love. It is his covenant love. It says we, he keeps steadfast love for thousands. So have you ever questioned, Christian, is God going to continue to love me when I continually fail him? Remember what Moses says in Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? When God makes covenant with us, he keeps that covenant. God could no more fail in maintaining his love for his people than he could deny his very character. And his love is expressed in forgiving transgression, iniquity, and sin. John McKay explains the significance of each of these terms. Iniquity points to actions twisted away from what is right by the willful wrongdoing of individuals. Sin renders the most general Hebrew term for a fault. However, rebellion is a willful violation of the terms of the covenant involving not merely disobeying a rule or regulation, but betraying the relationship one has with the covenant king. It involves treachery as well as disobedience. The whole range of human disregard for the Lord may be met with forgiveness. And if we were to stop right here, I would imagine that most people could accept what has been said. Most people have no problem accepting a God who is merciful, gracious, and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who forgives transgression, iniquity, and sin. But this is not where God stops, because he proclaims one more attribute, and it is that of his justice. God will by no means clear the guilty. A.W. Pink explains the reason for this. Because God is holy, he hates all sin. It follows, therefore, that he must necessarily punish sin. Sin can no more exist without demanding his punishment than without requiring his hatred of it. For one sin, Moses was excluded from Canaan. Elisha's servant smitten with leprosy, Ananias and Sapphira cut out of the land of the living. God will not clear the guilty. So how do we hold these two together? How can God forgive transgression and iniquity and sin if he does not clear the guilty? And again, Paul in Romans 3 addresses this very question. And again, it is in Christ. Romans 3, 25 and 26 God put forth Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus.
Christ is the sacrifice that turns away God's wrath and removes God's wrath from us. It is Christ's sacrifice that removes our sin from us. And it is in Christ that God is both just and the one who forgives, the one who has faith in Jesus. But not only is the consequence of sin and the judgment for sin eternal, but it also carries temporal consequences as well. God says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, what does that mean? Is this a a statement of generational curse as though the subsequent generations have or bear the sin and the guilt of a previous generation? Well, no. Ezekiel 18, 20 makes it clear. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So what does that mean? What does this statement mean? Well, look at that phrase, the third and the fourth generation. That's the key. Because four generations would be the parents, the children, the grandchildren, and the great-grandchildren. The common denominator between all four of those, especially at this time, is that they would all be alive at the same time and presumably living together as the people of Israel lived in clans. So what is God saying? God is saying that your sin doesn't just affect you. It affects those around you. The consequences of what you're doing affects those around you, namely your family. We see an example of that with the kings of Israel. Almost all of them are described in terms of whether they followed in the footsteps of their evil father or their righteous father. Almost all kings are described this way in terms of the example that they followed. There is both eternal and temporal consequence for sin because God does not clear the guilty. This is who God is. He is the Lord. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving transgression, iniquity, and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. This is his glory. And so in verse 8, we see the response to God's glory. What does Moses do? He bowed his head to the earth and he worshiped. Worship is the only proper response to the revelation of God's glory. But what is that worship supposed to look like? How do we respond to God's glory? Well, let's look at the example of Moses. First, we see Moses' posture in verse 8. He bowed his head quickly towards the earth. Now remember, when God tells him that he's going to show him his glory, he tells him that my glory is going to pass by you. This is not going to be an ongoing experience. This is something that for Moses is going to be momentary in a particular moment of time, and then it will pass. And so you would think that given what Moses has been given the opportunity to see, 
that he would milk that for all it's worth. That he would not take his eye off of what he is going to see for even a second. But that's not what he does. No sooner that he sees a revelation of God's glory and hears the words from the mouth of God, he quickly bows his head to the earth and worships. Now, quite a few years ago, I had an opportunity to go to the Grand Canyon. And the group that I was with, we decided that we wanted to see the sunrise over the canyon. And so we camped outside the state park and we got up really early that morning. We drove into the park. We found a great spot. And we were able to watch the sunrise over the canyon. And for every person that was there, I mean, you had people taking videos, taking pictures, but the common denominator between everyone is no one closed their eyes. No one took their eyes off of this, this beauty of God's creation, this sunrise over the Grand Canyon, a once-in-a-lifetime experience for many of us. And yet when Moses encounters something infinitely greater, infinitely more glorious, infinitely more beautiful, what does he do? He quickly bows his head to the ground and worships. For all the beauty that we see in creation, God's glory is so infinitely beyond what we could even imagine that Moses could not even keep his eye on it for a second. And we see how the expression of Moses' worship, we see his posture, but next we'll see his prayer. The first thing that Moses does as an act of worship is that he prays. And I think that's instructive because the discipline of prayer private prayer will say more about what you believe about God than any other thing. The discipline of prayer. Let's look at how Moses prays. He says, if I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And as we look at each one of these statements, if you go back a chapter or two, you will find every single statement that Moses says here has already been said previously. God has told him that he's found favor in his sight. God has told him that he's going to go in the midst of them. God has told them that he is going to forgive their sin. And God has told them that they're going to inherit the land that God had promised. So since God has already said this, why does Moses pray for it? Well, the answer is, that's why. Because that is what God has said. Moses' prayer is being guided by God's revelation. This is how Moses is aligning himself with the will of God, by praying according to the word of God. So let me ask you about your own prayers. Does your frequency in prayer reflect that you believe in a sovereign God? Or does it reflect a heart of self-sufficiency? Does your confession of sin reflect that you believe both that God forgives transgression, iniquity, and sin, and that he will not clear the guilty? Or does it reflect that you believe in one as opposed to the other, to the expense of the other? 
What about your petitions? Do your petitions reflect that you believe the word of God, that you believe what he has said and revealed to us? Or are they simply a list of things that you want God to do for you? Do they reflect a heart of selfishness rather than commitment to his will and his word? But where all our prayers should begin as we think about these things, we should ask the same thing that Moses asks. is for God to show us his glory. Now, we don't have the same experience on Mount Sinai as Moses did, as he is a unique character in Scripture and prefigures Christ. So how does God reveal his glory to us today? Well, as I briefly mentioned, he reveals his glory to us in creation. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Further, he reveals himself in his word. You notice that when he reveals himself to Moses, almost nothing, matter of fact, nothing at all, is said of what Moses saw. But the emphasis is on what Moses heard, the proclamation of the Lord regarding his own character. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see Israel's commitment to that proclamation. As parts of Exodus 34, 6, and 7 find their way into no less than a dozen other passages in the Psalms and in the prophets. It became something of a confession of faith for them. When they thought about who God is, who is their covenant God, this is the proclamation that they thought of. This is the word they thought of. But ultimately, God has revealed his glory to us in his son. In John 1.14, we see the echo of Exodus 34. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so how do we respond to God's glory? How do we begin to respond to the revelation of God? We'll turn back for just a moment to Exodus 24 where Moses confirms the covenant. After he does so, in verse 9, listen to what it says. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Listen to this. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. This is where our response to God begins, by beholding his glory. And it is in beholding the glory of God that we are transformed into the likeness of Christ and are empowered by his spirit to live a life that is pleasing to him and glorifies him. Jonathan Edwards, again, in his dissertation on the end for which God created the world, explains how this works, how beholding God transforms us and results in a life lived unto that glory that has been revealed. And we'll close with this. Light is the external expression of 
exhibition and manifestation of the excellency of the sun, for instance. It is by this that the sun itself is seen and his glory beheld and all other things are discovered. It is by this that all nature receives life, comfort, and joy. In the creatures knowing, esteeming, loving, rejoicing in, and praising God, the glory of God is both exhibited and acknowledged. His fullness is received and returned, so that the whole is of God, is in God, and to God. He is the beginning and the middle and the end. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed your glory to us in your word. And God, as we look at this text, we can barely begin to comprehend who you are. But God, we marvel at and are thankful for your mercy, your grace, your patience, your love, your faithfulness, and your justice. God, I ask for your help for us that on a daily basis that we would behold your glory, that we would be transformed by it into the image of Christ, and that we may live in light of the glory you have revealed to the glory of your great name. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.